Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, December the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me today in the studio are Pat Leahy and Cormac McQuinn from the Irish Times political team. Gentlemen, good day to you both. Hello, Hugh. Bonjour, Hugh. Pat, maybe we should turn first of all to this long-awaited wording for these referendums, which are going to take place on March the 8th. Is that correct? International Women's Day, Hugh, yeah, um, marked in my calendar, yours as well, I'm sure. So, yeah, this we've known this was coming for uh, some time. It was postponed. Cabinet last week went through this week, um, announced formally then by the Taoiseach and Roderick O'Gorman, who is uh, the department that is pushing it. So the referendums, two referendums will do three things. They will take the references to women's role in the home uh, out of the constitution. They will expand the definition of the family in the constitution beyond the family based on marriage. And uh, they will recognise the importance of care given in uh, a family setting. Um, Bit of a lukewarm welcome, really, from some of the NGOs that had been, including people like the National Women's Council and that, who had been campaigning for this because they wanted a stronger wording, they wanted stronger recognition of uh, of care and perhaps carers within the Constitution. Now, it was never the case that this was going to create justiciable rights for carers. It was always going to be a slightly watery, aspirational sort of recognition rather than anything concrete that There's been a lot of talk about legal what the, rights. Um, the, the Citizens' Convention recommended. Yes. Was that justiciable? What was, what was recommended there? It wasn't explicitly justiciable. But it was but closer to it. It was a lot closer to it um, than this. And it was quite surprising. I think that in recent weeks, some of the lobby groups had been pushing for a stronger wording. They didn't really get it. And that was one of the reasons why I think why they came out with this very weak endorsement of a coalition of organisations saying that, you know, they welcomed the announcement and they would now study the wording and they would consult with their members to see what approach they would take to a referendum campaign. So certainly not. I mean, if you're Roderick O'Gorman, if you're the government, you were going to be campaigning to get this passed. And what you want is these sort of organisations, NGOs, stakeholders in the government jargon to come out on the day that it's announced and say, this is great, we're going to all going to campaign for it. But that's very much not what they said. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Cormac. There's a couple of things that strike me about it and about the complaints or the lukewarm reaction which, which Pat talks about there. One is this complaint that the government has not done exactly what 
the convention asked it to do. Well, the government is a sovereign parliament. The country elected by the people is not obliged to do anything more than to take account of what the convention recommends, is it? And the other one is this broader question, and this is not the only point on which it's a, a debate at the moment about whether we should insert these sorts of social justiciable, as Pat describes them, rights into the Constitution. There's talk at the moment about a right to housing being enshrined in the Constitution as well. Is that the right way to go about things? And is it, uh, does it constrain future democratically elected governments if we insert these things too strongly into the Constitution? Absolutely, it does constrain them. That's why they're so reluctant to do it. Um, I, I think one of the things about the, the lukewarm reaction is there has been this coalition spearheaded, it seems, by the, the National Women's Council, but it also includes uh, SIP2, it includes organisations that represent one-parent families and other things. So I, I, part of me wonders if, if the reason for the lukewarm reaction is just they can't ensure that all six organisations are definitely on the same page. What I suspect will actually happen is that all of them or, or most of them will certainly campaign for a yes vote because like, they've been looking for the, the controversial women in the home reference in the Constitution to be, to be removed for decades. This is the opportunity to do that. I, I can't see them passing it up to get language on care broader care in the community into the constitution. I don't, th don't see any of them opposing the the, uh, the, the referendum on that basis. Uh, so I'd, I would wonder how important the, the lukewarm reaction will be. I also, one thing I wonder, and we haven't really seen this yet, but we're only at the very start, is who is actually going to come out and, and oppose uh, these referendums? Will it be, you know, the religious right, perhaps, you know, uh, some of the, perhaps some independent TD senators, this this sort of thing? We're, we're going to have to, we're going to have to uh, tease that out in the, in the next little while. Well, I'm um, sure there are some public figures, I can, can think of a couple of them in the Irish, on the Irish landscape, who will say that this is devaluing uh, the institution of marriage, for example, in relation to some of the changes that Pat was describing there. And perhaps some who will say that, you know, that, um, that it was correct to um, to give a special place to the role of women in the home. None of this, of course, has any real meaning for the way any Irish people have led their lives since the Constitution was established this in 1937. That provision has been relevant for, for yeah. many decades at this stage. These pure adornments and pieties in a Constitution, I just wonder whether we should have them in the, uh, at all, Pat. I mean, would well, it have made sense maybe, if this... If, if this if, if maybe the women it's in the exactly home thing, the place for them. So well, they they do no they do no well, I mean, if the, if the women in the home was objectionable, which I think it was, it was rooted in a, in a very particular um, set of set of political beliefs a very long time ago. And if it's right to get rid of it, why not just get rid of it? Why, did, why, why does it need to be replaced with anything? Because the Citizens' Assembly was also recommended that the role of carers should be uh, recognised. And I guess the government didn't want to ignore that completely. There's also been a series of court decisions and that on the... Uh, the definition of the family, which within the constitution is described as being founded on marriage. But clearly in the Ireland of 2023, there are families that are not uh, founded, on, sure. uh, founded on marriage or families that were founded on a marriage and marriage is now broken up and so forth. So I suppose for people in that situation, it is a nod towards... It's, it's the state, and if people vote to change the constitution, it's their fellow citizens 
voting to give a nod to the legitimacy of their domestic arrangements, whatever they may, uh, uh, whatever they may be as well. And, and, and I'm sure that there is a value uh, in that. But, you know, to answer your earlier question, I, I'm sure there will be people for, you know, you know, perfectly valid reasons to them or reasons that Absolutely. are perfectly valid to them that, that, um, uh, that will oppose the changes in the referendum. And, you know, that, that, that's, that's quite legitimate as well. It would be very peculiar to have a suggested change in the Constitution that no, nobody objected H- to. History tells us that, that these kinds of changes can kind of run awry in certain circumstances, that even if there isn't, you know, a mass opposition to a particular proposal, if there's not much enthusiasm or energy on the on the government side, if there's a strong vociferous, even if it's relatively small, opposition, and then if there's a low turnout, things can go wrong. Oh, for sure. And, you know, we, we know that there's a well-established pattern in Irish referendums whereby lots of people vote for vote for reasons that have nothing whatsoever got to do with what's on the ballot. Maybe they, you know, they fancy voting against a government proposal, what, whatever it is. And, you know, there is a, there's a substantial, I mean, I think the history of referendums would show there's a substantial chunk of people will vote against whatever it is, you know. And 30% maybe, maybe so. that's, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's a healthy thing in a, in, mm-hmm. in a way in that I suppose it keeps, uh, uh, it, it keeps government and, um, and the political class on their toes. So I would say this is not a foregone conclusion that it will pass uh, at all. I think it would be a big surprise if it didn't pass. But, um, but I wouldn't, um, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's foregone. You'd, you'd have to it. suspect it would be a turnout in a day issue you know it's not it's not being paired with any any kind of significant elections local elections mm-hmm. european elections or anything like that She's right start of march right. it's yeah. just so you're likely to be much more than 50% at the very most this is it and that was mm. what that was what put the, the children to a reasonable lunch it's considerably less than 50% but this is it it's what put the children's rights uh, proposal of, of a few years back at jeopardy you know i think it passed quite narrowly in the end and it was it was the turnout issue so you know it's and and that might be the issue with the, the lukewarm reaction from the from the, these various NGOs is if they're if they're not exercised if they can't get people people out to the polls so that that that's the the threat to this this proposition passing but I still I'm kind of in agreement with Pat I'd be shocked if it didn't if it didn't go through Cormac, another story which has been dominating the headlines over the course of the week is speculation about the future of the Minister for Public Expenditure, Pascal Donoghue. Bloomberg reported uh, about a week ago that he was being considered for the role of Managing Director of the uh, IMF, the International Monetary Fund. It's a job which comes up towards the end of next year. Uh, kind of caused a bit of consternation in government circles, hasn't it? This, this is it, yeah. I mean, uh, no, nobody's saying he shouldn't go for it. Uh, you know, but and then they're all sticking to this line of oh, he intends to run in Dublin Central. Well, you can intend to do something, but if you're if you're offered a big job in Washington, you you, you might suddenly not be intending to do it anymore. Um, it's always interesting when when Irish people are are nominated for a, a big international job. I mean, I think back to how many how many you know presidents of the European. Council or President of the European Commission jobs was Enda Kenny supposed to get and in the end he didn't get any of them. You know, what's different perhaps about Pascal Donoghue is actually he already has a big job. He's the the, uh, the president of of, of uh, the Eurogroup and he got it got it not once but twice. So if anyone actually is in a, in with a shot or something like this, it's it's probably him. Um, you know, it, but yeah, it, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Certainly Michael McGraw was all, all for him, the Fianna Fáil Minister for Finance.
Fitness was all for him getting it by the sound of his, his interview earlier in the week. It's, it's well, how he'd be a great candidate. Isn't he? He'd like to see him get a nice job. But, I mean, you were writing about this and you were saying it's, it's a complex, opaque, maybe even kind of Byzantine process that leads to disappointment. So who knows whether or not he's really in with the shout. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I suspect he is in with the shout. That's all we can say at this stage. You know, I guess that these appointments, this comes as a load of political appointments. And I, I, let me foreground this by saying that actually I, I think that there's nothing that disinterests ordinary people more than, you know, whether politicians get jobs or so not. So let's talk but about actually, it at great length. <laughs> <laughs> precisely our market, so. Um, but it is important, I think, um, and not, not just for, it's clearly important for Pascal Donoghue, but the government is faced with, I think this actually could be a quite significant political story next year. The government is faced with the loss and parking for a moment the likelihood or not of Pascal Donoghue getting the thing. And we can't really say I yes or no to that at this stage. What we can say, I think, at this stage is that he is a candidate. It was put to him. He gave us the old, you know, I'm concentrating on the job that I have at the moment. Now, you know, if if people want to completely scotch the stories about their that. interest in that, they can say that. They can mm-hmm. say the following words. I am not interested in this job. I will not be a candidate for this job. And if asked to do this job, I will decline to do it. But neither Pascal Dunhoo nor Michael McGrath said that uh, about uh, another job. And I'll come to that in a second. But I think if you take out Pascal Dunhoo from this government, certainly from the budget-making process, it looks like a different government. If you take out Michael McGrath as well, and Michael McGrath was equally unwilling to completely rule himself out of the possibility of becoming Ireland's next commissioner, which is also a job that uh, yeah, that, that nominations must be put in for that next summer. If you take those two people out of the cabinet, then it's a different government. The budget-making process is certainly different. And that Big change in the government would come in the months before a general election. So, you know, I, I mean, I know... So just after the local and European elections, just before the preparations for this government's last budget and arguably on the eve of, you know, within a couple of months of a general don't election. Don't forget there's, there's TDs worse, that have it? already expressed interest in running for European elections as well. Uh, you know, Joseph Madigan being one, um, you Barry know... Cowan. Barry yeah. Cowan, you know, if they if they get elected, that leads to prospect of by-elections. I, th- I think what all of this amounts to is we're looking at, you know, a very big influence on the timing of the next general election because it wouldn't it make sense for the government just to avoid all of those by-elections altogether and just go for the big one. So while I had my back turned, I was off for a week. You had Cliff Taylor in with his uh, theory of the, uh, the incentives for an early election. Is this an added incentive for an earlier election? Depends if they get the jobs, get elected, really, I suppose, isn't it? <laughs> Certainly is something that would likely go into the mix in terms of that whole vortex of decision-making, isn't and it? And in terms of the, our year of elections, which we're, we're just about to embark on, 2024, 20, I mean, sequencing is sort of important, isn't it? There was a sort of, there's been a kind of a an impression for a while that you'd get through the Europeans and the locals, get through the summer, have a relatively generous election budget, immediately after the summer and then you very generous and then you go to the polls mm-hmm. but if you start throwing in these kind of wobblies which as you say you know TDs running for Europe and therefore stepping down the majority getting thinner and then two of the most the kind of the linchpin 
of the current yeah, government I mean, to the, do with the, them. The, possibly the being guys, gone before the end and of the summer. They, they would, in theory, would have started the budgetary process mm. with, you know, the, the early work and the summer economic it's statement before they'd, before they'd get the big jobs. So, you know, it, they wouldn't be there to finish it. Yeah, it's messy. Could get quite messy. Now, Cliff's theory was that, without wishing to retread all the uh, territory that we covered in that excellent podcast when you weren't uh, around, Hugh, um, uh, Cliff's theory was that it, a spring election, our early summer election uh, this year, or next year rather, um, would, would make sense from, lot, from a couple of different perspectives. I'm not sure about that. And I think if it were to happen, what Leo Varadkar would need is a public-facing reason to justify going early. Something beyond, I believe this to be in my political interests. And I'm not sure he can muster that in the spring. Okay, well, we shall see. But that's our first prediction for 2024, I think. Plenty uh, more where that came from. Not our, not our last. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. Perhaps the most uh, dramatic events in the Dáil this week, I suppose, Cormac, where it was, you know, when there's a vote of no confidence in a justice minister, that's usually a heightened moment. Uh, there was a lot of sparks flying in the chamber. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know. I think Pat put it well in his column, uh, you know, or his analysis afterwards that it was fin- it gave Fine Gael TDs an opportunity to engage in their their favourite sport, uh, kind of Sinn Fein bashing essentially, uh, and that's what it meant. And I mean, Sinn Fein always had to table the motion when after Mary Lou Macdonald came out the day after the Dublin riots and said that the minister should resign. I mean, that they mulled over for about a week, but they always had to do it. I suspect the government was even willing them on to do it because, as we as we know and as we experience. These these motions of confidence uh, in this government in particular, they tend to win them comfortably, and they sort uh, of help when the when a, well, when government's draw, in, a, in a moment of it, difficulty. It allows it, them to rally the rally, troops, mm. you know. It it uh, and it can draw a line under other issues as well. I mean, it okay the the, the issues at the heart of the riot and the, the chaos caused in Dublin, they they will remain, and we we saw that even in the days following when Helen McEntee was was back before the Justice Committee answering questions about it again. I, I can't imagine that will go away as an issue anytime soon but I, I think the heat was certainly taken out of it uh, by by the the counter motion of confidence that the government tabled there on, on Tuesday and uh, yeah, it's, it's been a pattern in this government Jared Howland has an interesting column in today's edition of the Irish Times Pat in which he argues that this was a misstep by Sinn Féin that they um, it was a misstep to to um, put the motion of no confidence in Helen McEntee. It was a downright mistake, he says, to call for the resignation of Drew Harris. But more broadly, he makes the point, which I think is interesting, is when this material comes to the top of the agenda, as it has done in the last few weeks, that that's bad for Sinn Féin. It's good for Sinn Féin when everybody's talking about housing and cost of living. When people are talking about security and migration, that's bad for them. I think that's right. And I think that was fairly evident uh, this week, I think Sinn Féin's most difficult period in this doll came a little more than 12 months ago with the uh, Jonathan Dowdle trial and the, the former Sinn Féin councillors implicated in the trial of, uh, well, he, he was a lieutenant of um, gangland figure, Jerry Hutch. And throughout the autumn of last year, when it suddenly became very difficult to find Sinn Féin politicians doing uh, stand-ups on the plinth in Leinster House for a period of weeks. I think that was a very uncomfortable time, not just for the party, 
but also for Mary Lou personally, because, of course, she, he, uh, Jonathan Dowell being a councillor in her constituency. More broadly, there is, of course, you know, the legacy of Sinn Féin's support for, uh, for the IRA and its long campaign of paramilitary violence in, uh, in the north. Which included and the assassination of Drew Harris's father. Included the assassination of Drew Harris's father and included the murder of uh, a large number of Gardaí. And um, so I, I just think it is, it is uncomfortable terrain for Sinn Féin. And I thought that was evident during the week. It became comfortable terrain for Fine Gael, which in a way it shouldn't have been because there has been this problem on Dublin streets. The, you know, the riots uh, took place preceded by, the, uh, preceded by the crime. And, you know, I think all politicians, all parties would say that law and order had been creeping up the political agenda uh, in a lot of places be- before those riots. And that should be bad news for Fine Gael holding the, holding the Justice Ministry. But there was a, a rally uh, in the Dáil, really, by, by Fine Gael this week. I think the tables were turned a little bit on Sinn Féin. It's always unwise to read too much into body language and facial expressions of TDs and so forth in the Dáil, or at least it is a, a school of analysis that is fraught with risk. But I thought, I sat through nearly all the debate uh, in the Dáil, uh, on Tuesday evening, I thought it was unmistakable the extent to which there was a lot of discomfort on the Sinn Féin benches through it. And they looked to me like a bunch of people who were saying to themselves, Jesus, whose idea was this? There were further heated exchanges on Wednesday, I think, Cormac, where there was a, a debate on migration, which had, was initiated by the Rural Independence Group. And there were a lot of insults flung across the chamber that day as well. There was, yeah. It, I mean, they, the the rural independents have have clearly seen a, a gap in the market for for to raise concerns about immigration in the Dáil. We we don't have, you know, elected far right politicians, I suppose. But there is there is a, a good chunk of the population who has concerns about about immigration, particularly people in it's rural areas. It's not far areas. right to have concerns about immigration. It's, well, immigration, it's not. It no, depends what those concerns are. Some but, of them it, it, right, you know, it, but there are concerns in rural areas about services like access to GPs, you know, uh, school places, that's, that sort of thing. So, I mean, the rural independents would obviously argue it was a very legitimate thing to, to, to raise, that there should be a cap in the numbers coming in. Uh, they would have faced accusations from the likes of Social Democrats that they were engaging in dog whistle politics. Uh, but it will be a major issue in the election immigration and uh, we're, we are starting to see it more and more on the doll. Obviously, one doesn't want to be looking at just one, one opinion poll, particularly when it's not an Irish Times opinion poll, and therefore, you know, we don't give it quite as much credence. But I thought it was interesting in the most recent one last weekend that uh, Sinn Féin were down three and the independents were up three. We had pollster Kevin Cunningham on last week. Uh, he was arguing that the, the peculiarity of the Irish system, which it contributes in, in part to the fact that we don't have a radical right or far right party at the moment is is not so much the presence of Sinn Féin, which some people have pointed out in the past as a sort of blocking mechanism, but that it's the independence, that it's the strength of the independence in the Irish system, which is pretty unique across Europe, makes it very difficult because they are often appealing to the same constituency. And Kevin points, for example, to the scale of the protests, which you referred to there, Cormac, in, in towns across the country as in terms of on a per capita basis being much larger 
much larger proportion of a local community than, for example, what we saw in the streets of Dublin a couple of weeks ago. Well, this is one of the ways that the Irish political system works is that concerns like this often seep in through the independents and they will go from the independents into the larger parties. I mean, that seems to me to be the inevitable trajectory um, of this now. I mean, there is concerns about uh, immigration all all over the country and there is pressure on services and that. And some of that, I've no doubt, is rooted or at least tinged with xenophobia, but a lot of it, um, a, a lot of it isn't necessarily uh, so. And I think, I mean, I've, I've written about this a couple of times in recent weeks. We've discussed it here. I think this is now an issue in our politics, and whether you like that or you 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 don't, I don't think it's going to go away. Do you think then that do you think that Kevin is right, and that that might lead to a further surge in independence, driven by that that's by those sentiments? I think it is, I mean, if you look at a lot of, a lot of constituencies already have, have independence. Not all of them are, of course, on the sceptical side of the immigration debate in the way that many of the rural independents are. But um, I think where there aren't independents willing to give a voice to that, I think it's perfectly feasible that they will emerge, yeah. Who knows, after the next election, we might have very diverse new voices in the doll, like this one, for example. Disrespecting me and wasting time on a verse. Yeah, not on my level, not on my universe. I'm on the way to the doll, so f*** all of y'all. I'm in the Lamborghini on RTE, yeah, Marl see me. So that was uh, Conor McGregor, who's been in the news a lot lately. Pat, I remember I made a terrible mistake in this podcast several months ago when I introduced our Friday rap and I said, and here are our rappers, one of them being Pat Lee, and you started doing something terrible involving words like yo and doing a kind of a pretend reverse baseball cap. I take it back now. You're not as bad as Conor McGregor is at this thing. <laughs> There's always there's always some, something worse than you out there, Hugh. So Conor McGregor, the vanilla ice of the 2020s, has re- revealed himself. Is there any way that we should take this seriously? I think he is more vanilla ice than Eminem, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, people didn't take Trump seriously when he started out on the on the, the birther thing and then then graduated to getting presidential notions. Conor McGregor has been talking about presidential notions here, I, but it's hard to know how serious he is. He talks about a lot of things on social media. He's, he is very active, as, as we all know. Um, would he get support? Would he get support? I mean, The Sun had a had a quite a entertaining front page today, uh, headlined McGregor's Kick in the Oris, where they surveyed independent TDs and senators to see if he would get the required 20 nominations to, to get on the, the ballot paper. Uh, he, he has no no uh, de- declarations of support just yet. Anyway, uh, Senator Eileen Flynn uh, gave one particularly good comment. I wouldn't, I wouldn't nominate him to wash the dishes, you know. Uh, a, few, a few said they didn't know either way, but uh, I'd still be shocked if any of them actually went for it. Trump succeeded in taking over a party and that was his vehicle. It's very difficult to see yes, what uh, Conor McGregor's party vehicle might be. He does fit a template to some extent, doesn't he? If you look at Argentina, you look at some of those sim- similar political figures like, you know, around the place, you know, mad hair, uh, willing ba- to say things that other people don't say. Argentina's a, a basket case, though. Ireland isn't a basket case. You know, there isn't that sort of, there is dissatisfaction with many aspects of public administration. But the idea... Uh, canvassed by you know, some people in political discourse that it is a 
you know, complete basket case, a failed state and that, that's simply not supported by the evidence and it's not widely believed. I mean, I, I, I would... Uh be very sceptical about how suited he would be to the role of president, given the the kind of the limitations on what a president can or can't say. But and it's definitely there, president, is it? Because he was talking about the, uh, about the doll there. I mean, I'm not sure whether it's well, yeah, maybe you do both. Most of the country has been president, but if there was any sort of election that that you know attracts celebrities, I suppose, as we've seen in in recent presidential elections, is that we've also seen that none of them got elected. Would people vote for him? I, I doubt. I doubt he, he would. Have nominated a, a huge, and he a huge, doesn't have a, well, an obvious route to that. For for councils or 20 Oireachtas members I mean, it's, a, it's a tall order uh, you might get the councils and it's still a couple of years away and it's still a couple of years away it gives him plenty of time so you don't see him standing as you know Dublin South Central next year uh, he might uh, he, he may be more focused on re- reviving his UFC career as, I suspect than than, uh, than coming into the doll. I think it's very unlikely Okay, well, we shall see again in 2024. Um, It's becoming a recurring theme. Uh, We always, in these Friday podcasts, each pick an article which took our fancy over the course of the week. Um, Cormac? Yeah, I was reading uh, Mark Paul's coverage of Boris Johnson's uh, testimony to the the COVID inquiry across the water there. And, uh, you know, typical Boris, you know, he, he could be... You know, well, Mark Paul headline put it put it quite well. Uh, former PM ducks and dives out of both sides of his mouth, and you know he he turned on the charm, but also the contrition. I mean, he began with a a, a very a very uh, grovelling apology. Uh, how could he do otherwise when he had had family members of people who had died during the pandemic sitting in the, the public gallery? But also then came out with various Borisisms like I, sh- I should have twigged it earlier in terms of the danger of uh, uh, the presented by COVID, you know, and outright admitting that, you know, that he and his officials felt bewildered and, and uh, you know, frazzled during the pandemic, but at the same time denying that there was the level of chaos that was there. And then the second day referring to the parties that happened in number 10 and and saying that the, the press blew them out of all, all proportion and it was a travesty of the truth the way it was presented. So it's it's fascinating. So much you know, more robust on the, on the, on the latest yeah, scandal yeah, and, and, and I, much more contrite about what were clearly mistakes in this, the early days. This is it, and it will, you know, it would be interesting to see how similar inquiry plays out here, presumably, next year. It's not going to be like that at all, though, is it, Pat? The inquiry, well, yeah. you may be sure that, you know, people that are setting it up will want to make sure that, is, uh, that it isn't, with, with some justification, I think. Mm. I mean, we've talked about it here before, um, you know, uh, where is... The COVID inquiry. It was supposed to supposed to be done in September. The then it was a few weeks. Then it was going to be a few weeks. A few weeks ago it was going to be wouldn't a few be weeks. Shocked if it gets pushed into the new year, the, the terms be, of reference. I wouldn't be completely amazed, which will mean that it will certainly not have its work concluded by the time of the next election. And uh, and I think that is a pity because I think we need to try and learn lessons from the last pandemic before the next one. My article is from the sports pages from last weekend's edition. It's a piece by by Dennis Walsh and it's about sports facilities in Dublin 8, which may seem a slightly esoteric subject, but it does relate to a lot of the things we've been talking about, about deprivation and marginalisation in Dublin's inner city. Dublin 8, there's about 50,000 people who live there and there isn't one full-sized pitch for the population of that amount of people. If you could imagine that in an Irish town of that size or indeed any of the, any of the suburbs which surround 
the city and he talks about the just the kind of the decades of neglect really and political shilly-shallying around this kind of issue and what it actually means for people, particularly young people of whom there are, I think there's about 8,000 people under 18 who live in the area and they don't have access to a single football pitch. It's a really good piece. I would recommend it. Pat, you were reading about uh, the sort of kerching moment that happened this week when uh, people were waiting with bated breath to see what the exchequer returns were going to be for the month. Yeah, so every month, at the start of the month, the Department of Finance publishes its exchequer returns, basically the money it spent the previous month and the money that came in in taxes. November is a particularly important month for corporation taxes when a lot of the big payers pay uh, their corporation tax. And corporation tax had, which of course has doubled in the last, doubled since, what, 2019 uh, or so, and has been the you know, the the river of money that has enabled this government both to increase spending steadily, throwing money at every political problem, but also burnish its prudence credentials by, its prudential credentials by uh, establishing these rainy day Not with the funds. Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, though. No, but <laughs> that's true. Yeah, they like the funds. But, but um, anyway, there has been some wobbles in corporation tax since the summer. There was a high degree of nervousness in the Department of Finance and around government generally that uh, November, this year's November returns were going to undershoot significantly. And that, had it happened, would really signal that we're on a different fiscal path that would require spending ambitions to be reined in and a much closer eye to be kept on things like budget overruns in the Department of Health. Anyway, the returns were published on Tuesday. Um, uh, Umber Kennedy was writing about it that evening and in the following day's paper. And uh, anyway, it turned out to be a, a record a record returns of 6.4 billion euros from corporation tax in that one month, which was not just in line with the optimistic predictions. It was 27% higher than, uh, so than last year. So it's a significant redress for, so, the, for the shortfall on predictions which we'd had for the and, last couple of months. Uh, and then some. So uh, it is a bit it of is, a roller coaster, in, in, in a way, though, isn't it? It's such a roller coaster. You know, this kind of waiting for this da da kind of moment every month. It's, it's, it's I mean, you. Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath are right when they say you can't plan on the basis of something as unpredictable as this. That is, yeah, that's that's entirely correct, I think. And uh, But I think had there been the third consecutive undershoot, then we would be having a very different conversation. This would be the biggest story of the week, would have budgetary implications, not for next year's budget, but for the year after that, which would be drawn up next year like possibly held within an election year. And uh, I think this, you know, the, just the, the, the tenor around government would be completely different now. As it happens, it's not. That's this just in, breaking news. Naomi O'Leary, our correspondent in Brussels, reports that Thomas Piketty, who's one of the most famous economists in the world, he's the theorist of how inequality works in modern globalised economies. And on foot of those results yesterday, he has criticised the Irish tax regime for uh, benefiting tax evaders, pointing out that, and I quote here, well, our report shows that uh, Ireland earns €4,500 per capita in corporation tax, and that is five times the corporation tax rate of France and Germany. So we're eating their lunch. We and we're been, going to continue to we do so for decades, as long as we so can. haven't we? I mean, it's 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 Ireland's unique selling point has been the, the low corporate tax rate. Okay, it's gonna it's gonna increase a little bit, or it looks like it's gonna increase a little bit in the next few years. But they're here now. You know, they've got the 
they've got the staff, they've got the, you know, they've got the premises, they've invested a lot of money. I, I well, they also re- relocate their, you know, intellectual property and various other things strategically here. Sure, mm. yeah, sure. Which they can do because they have significant operations here, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's been dissatisfaction elsewhere in Europe and in the United States about it for, for years. It's not, it's nothing new, is it? Is there not a moral question we should consider? That we're taking other people's money? This is a politics podcast. What's it to do with morals? <laughs> we'll leave you with that thought from our political editor. Thanks very much to Pat and to Cormac today. Thanks to our producer, John Casey, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back after the weekend. Until then, thank you very much indeed for listening. 